I'm Marcus Brown. This is a Runner's Life podcast. This is a platform for richer conversations that explore the person behind the runner. I discuss the topics that influence us as runners locally, whilst concurrently connecting us to the wider global community. If you found value in the show, please subscribe and share with your community on social media and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or the platform selected as it helps the podcast grow. If you want to support my work directly, you can become a member on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash a runner's life. Thank you for tuning in. Now let's head to the conversation. Hi, Russell. Welcome to a runner's life podcast. How are you getting on? Hi, I'm good, man. How are you doing? Doing really well, thank you. It's a bright, sunny day in the UK, so uh, yeah. can't complain of all things considered. That's right, yeah. We, yeah, we've been having gorgeous weather, actually. Yeah, we've been really lucky. Oh, great stuff. So I want to jump to the first part of your career, the early part. Uh, you were coached by the legendary Frank Corwell, the uh, renowned UK middle-distance coach who coached like quite a few you know, Great Britain and North Ireland international athletes. Um can you sort of talk about the experience that you had with him and what were the biggest lessons that he taught you that you implemented yeah. your running today? Well, yeah, first of all, I'm, in, I'm impressed you've done your research. So I don't know where you found that out. But yeah, my probably my first serious coach was Frank Corwell. Um, and I came as a teenager and I was a bit of a punk rocker. I had like red hair and I wasn't training too serious. And um, I thought I knew a thing or two about running. I think I'd already, like as a teenager, I'd run like a 155, 800. So I thought I was a big deal. Um, it turned up on a Saturday um, to see what he was all about. And it was, oh man, it was a baptism of fire, Marcus. So that guy had a work ethic that I have never seen since really. So it was... Um, it was very much like a make or break kind of mentality and um he would he would train you hard so it was like i did um i did the reps i thought we were finished and he was like right that's the warm-up done <laughs> i was like oh, oh my god <laughs> yeah he's joking and just like went home and slept for the rest of the weekend and um uh yeah something about that it was just actually quite addictive really and I did see improvement um, but also a lot of injuries so yeah Frank Corwell he invented the five pace system which is it's quite brutal actually but if you can do it it, it works amazing and it's um, the idea is that you train it um, you do like five sessions in two weeks this is um, yeah. quite specific and you do one at your pace um, so say you're a 1500 meter runner you would do um, uh, training session at 1500 meter speed and you do training at two speeds below and two speeds above so you'd be training at 800 meter pace 400 meter pace and then it would be something like 3k pace and 5k pace and yeah. so you're on the track every other day uh, i know sometimes if you've got very good said codes and hutchins they'd be on the track four times a week five times a week and so you don't really everything else is easy running and all Frank Corwell's athletes did very low mileage um, yeah. but it was brutal when you were when you were there on the track you were flat out every time so that was a bit about his philosophy yeah I guess track running especially at that sort of level is pretty brutal in the sense of like you've got certain paces to hit mm. and you did you sort of know what the paces were before you went into the workout yeah or? so I would know and I'd be like 
you know, my heart was being beating pretty hard the whole day, knowing what I had yeah. in store. You know, it would be something like a 600 meter time trial, and then some 200s after that. And I knew the 600 would be had to be hit in that time, and I knew it was going to really, really hurt. <laughs> it was going to be really hard, um, and I got injured a lot. Um, I had Achilles problems, and you know, Frank Horwell was from the old school, so um, there was not really much emphasis on technique and uh, yeah. looking back at my old races i had terrible form i was doing a lot of things wrong a lot of overstriding and uh, i was getting a lot of achilles problems i was very toey and kind of clawing and so i basically would break down a lot but yeah it was um it was flat out every time you're on the track there was never an easy session on the track and uh, if you had some kind of fundamental biomechanical flaws then they got found out real quick I mean, you talked about uh, the early part of your track career, you know, you trained hard uh, and I think that was a group mentality as well and you experienced injuries. Can you kind of talk us through like how you came through that experience and maybe what lessons you've learned about that period of injury that you take into like the current situation now with um, COVID-19 um, and how it keeps you focused now for your future running goals? Yeah, so um, what actually happened was um, I was getting so frustrated with these injuries that I was having, particularly Achilles. Um, I would go to uh, Kenya quite a lot to uh, train with Brother Colum, uh, Brother Colum O'Connell and the St. Patrick's training camp. Um, that was actually my mum's Irish um, and Brother Colum is Irish and also Frank Corwell and Brother Colum O'Connell, they knew each other um, from British Miners Club and Irish Miners Club. And the the link got forged, and I got you know the opportunity to go out there and train with them. And they actually did things very differently in Kenya. Um, surprising, I think, for most people. Um, we don't really focus on form in uh, Britain a lot uh, as distance runners or at all. Um, but in Kenya, the Brother Collins camp, they focused a lot on form, and actually a lot more slow running, a lot more. Um, work on just posture and they put yoga and pilates and, and all that stuff in there so um i actually took a year out i can't remember what year it was uh, it might have been 2003 i took a year away from running completely and, and just rebuilt my body so a lot of pilates a lot of yoga a lot of stretching a lot of just learning how to run a bit uh, better and um i never ran as fast again at 800 but I ran with a lot less injuries and I was a lot happier runner. And, um, and, and I think that's probably why I'm still running today because of that year that I took out and just you know, went back to basics. Okay. Mm. And how did you sort of learn the lessons, I guess, from like the down parts uh, for the injuries that you sort of implement today? Because a lot of people are struggling with, you know, not racing, not been able to go mm. for their race goals. I mean, how are you mm, basically yeah. implementing those lessons today? So, um, do you mean the lessons that I learned out in Kenya, or just lessons for myself? To oh, j uh, just from the times when you had those injuries and you, oh, had, yeah. you had to keep coming back mm. and yeah. So I would think I was on the verge of you know either quitting or just having to find another way, and yeah. I had to start listening to people. You know, and I was I think I was twenty four, and you know, kind of like. Um, angry, uh, young, arrogant child, you know, when I look back, 
and I had to grow up quick, you know, and, and learn to listen to people around me. And um, a lot of the things I was taught, um, they they stripped back the competitiveness, and then you know, and put and replaced it with all those cliches, but like you know, running for the joy of running and slowing down enough to smell the roses, and and those things, yeah, kept with me. Uh, I did lose sight of those again, and then when I had kids, and I know you've got yeah. a young family, I I rekindled. Like actually, if I'm not enjoying this, I can just sack it off and go yeah. uh, home and be with my kids. You know, and I made sure um, after having kids that I would have to put the enjoyment of running first. Otherwise, there was no no point doing it because I'd rather be with my family. And my wife would definitely rather me be around rather than away every weekend. So, um, yeah, the, the, the two things there is kind of like that decision where I was like, I can walk away from this forever or I can you know, learn how to do it right and, and have a longer and more enjoyable career. And then having kids, it was a definite moment for me where I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't need to be doing this. Nobody's forcing me to do this. I want to do this. And sometimes runners forget that, you know, they feel so miserable about the amount of training they've got to do to run a marathon. You're like, you put this all on yourself. So enjoy it or just don't bother. And uh, yeah, that's helped me a lot. It's really refreshing to hear that because speaking to my coach, I mean, I came into running uh, in my adult life. So mm. I didn't come into it starting off as a, you know, as, as a young, young person, young mm. runner and a completely different experiences. Like there's mm. more pressure especially when you're starting out, especially in track, you know, you know, you've got to hit these certain paces. Mm. So you know, there's a lot of pressure, especially you're growing up as well. So and then for me, like getting older as an adult, you basically get better more than more work you put in. So mm-hmm. it's less pressure. So mm-hmm. it's good to hear that actually you, you found some enjoyment and, you know, it's got grounded, especially the kids, because it's so easy for people who especially start quite young and it's very talented, you know, progress just to stop at a certain point. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, that has been a, a saving grace for me is just finding a way to, to keep in the game because of the love of the sport, you know, and, and the kids definitely refocused on me. You know, I was moving up um, the distances and I was moving, I moved from 800 and I was running 10Ks and I was frustrated and I plateaued and kids came along and I was like, yeah, just eyes open and actually... It didn't matter at that point whether I was 25 or 35, I still had to find a way to do it um, and come home after a session that didn't go well and be a good dad, you know, or try to be, you know, the wife would <laughs> say, you know, yeah. I still come home in a, in a bad mood sometimes, but much, much less. And um, and if you, if you can really do that, you, you really have to go to the track and, and be a bit more philosophical, you know, whatever happens you win you know if you you get your body around the track and you come home not injured not ill then it's been a good day even if you didn't get the times you know they were prescribed by the coach and um and you get over it straight away and you get back to you know to being a positive (laughs) presence in the house (laughs) yeah it's like sometimes you want that break but then it's good to have that perspective change because like Mm. i can relate in some ways like i go for my long run or do my interval work and you come back and then 
you're you've transformed from a runner into like a human trampoline for your kids yeah, or like a human oh, climbing no, frame so no. you've got no chance yeah. to like stop and like ruminate about your, your missed yeah, laps yeah, exactly yeah you've got to move on from that real quick yeah if we have um do you do your kids ever come watch you do a race or anything uh, not yet, but oh, um, yeah. that'll be fun. You'll like that one. Yeah. yeah. So we yeah. did one. Remember one where it was in Connolly, so it was like right by this harbour, and I won yeah. the race, and and I was really you know proud of myself. And as soon as I crossed the line, Nino was like, "Had these effing kids for an hour and a half. I can't take it any longer." <laughs> just dumped them on me, you know, and she just kind of stormed off to a coffee shop, and I was like, "Hang on a minute, I'm exhausted here. So don't care." <laughs> I had to stop him like yeah. falling into the river and I was ah <laughs> oh, kids but yeah it does take your mind off the pain somehow and, and it's good fun I can relate to that you get that look of don't even mention yeah, it you're yeah, tired yeah yeah you think <laughs> you've been up. working hard what do you know <laughs> yeah so yeah, yeah you, you fall back but I think mm. your kids are probably a bit older than my kids so yeah. I think yeah hopefully when mine are a bit older then they can come watch me yeah. but at the minute mine are so young but they, they, mm. they my my daughter she's like she's a bit younger she she gets when I go running she's like daddy get me running and she sort of does the yard oh, movement nice, and goes nice. and sort of chases me yeah. so oh, man, uh, that stuff is just lovely like that has definitely yeah. rekindled my love for it like um, I wasn't really big into medals so much I, I think coming from uh, my background I've been doing races since I was 11 and I just had so yeah. many medals it did get it didn't I just had too many so I didn't yeah. I'd lost the love for them but um, you know my kids found them you know found one that I brought home from a race one day and I just you know chucked it in a drawer and they dragged it out I'm like wow what's this and then they were like daddy won a medal and then it made me feel quite proud and I was like oh yeah, yeah. And now a big part of it for me is to bring them home a medal you know and, and get them engaged with it and um i've actually i had a whole cupboard um oh not a cupboard i wouldn't say cupboard i had a whole um drawer box full of trophies yeah. and that they're now up in a shelf in my kids room because <laughs> they're that proud of my um of my running you know and so it, it's something that you will definitely find as your kids get older you know they start to understand that daddy's a runner daddy goes running daddy does races and, and gets medals and and I think they'll really, really enjoy being part of that journey with you. Absolutely, and mm-hmm. you know, kids, as you as you know, like they copy what you do yeah. rather than what you yeah. say. So oh, I'm yeah. hoping definitely I can be a, a better influence doing that mm-hmm. those sort of things. Yeah, really. exactly. Yeah, and that's a big part of trying to make sure when you come home from your run, you're in a good mood. Yeah. Otherwise, I'll be like, wow, okay, daddy went running. You've got a choice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you don't have a choice. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to get on it's with like it. I'm tired, really. Mm-hmm. You tired? Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> Deal with it. Yeah, that's it. That's so, uh, well, we do our best, anyways. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking back to your early career. Um, you know, you were living and training with like some of the best athletes, and we talked about your coach, Frank. Mm. Um, can you describe the moment in your running journey that you realised that your natural talent wasn't enough to be your best, and you mm. needed to combine it with both nature and nurture? Yeah, so I really realized that in Kenya, and it wasn't so much about the talent. I felt like when I took that year away, and then I came back, um, you know, I've become more of a student of the sport, and I fixed a lot of my biomechanical flaws, and I wasn't getting injured as much. Um, but 
the lifestyle of a of a Kenyan runner is, is so entirely different to the lifestyle of a Western runner, and I had to make a choice. You know, I I'd already um I'd reached the decision at maybe I was twenty six, twenty seven, and I'd met um my then girlfriend, now wife Nina, and I had to decide: am I going to stay in Kenya and train? these guys the best in the world three uh, times a day and and do what it takes to be in the right environment and be in the right structure and the right system eating the right food but I, I don't know if you've ever been um to Ken I don't think you have but it's like a running mecca and everything is focused on running there there's very little to do outside of, of running um except for you know going to a, a local what they call a cinema but it's basically just a big tv and watching running is it's all yeah. it's all very very running focused and um uh i decided not to do that <laughs> so i came back here and i made peace with that decision and i don't regret that decision but i think um uh, i've learned a lot about um actually the nurture side of it and to my surprise is is a lot more powerful than the nature you know you talk about the um, Kenyans and their genes and um, the, the nature side of it, but you know, scientists can't really find any genes to prove that the Kenyans are superior. Um, if you look at the, I don't know if you've heard of the Kiwis, Jake and Zane Robertson, who have had incredibly yeah. successful careers, what um, they moved to yeah. Kenya when they were 16 and just yeah. lived there and trained with uh, and among the Kenyans. and and have done just as well as the Kenyans. And now there are several examples of um, of non-Kenyans just going and you know embedding in their society and in their structure and, and thriving, which goes to show actually it's a lot more nurture than, than people think. I'd say another recent example would be the uh, Ingebrigtsen brothers. I don't know if you've heard of those guys. No. Okay, so there's, uh, there's three brothers from Norway and they're just ripping up the world scene. They, they're incredibly big. And their dad had them running. Um, the, the best uh, of them is the youngest, Jacob. And his dad had him training uh, from when he was 10, really. And um, 13, he started training seriously. By 17, he broke four minutes for the mile. Not even been 16. And, and now he's definitely one of the very, very best in the world. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I mean, his dad had no history in running. Neither did his uh, mum. And some of the um, brothers, they've got like seven kids, this uh, family, didn't didn't make it, didn't work out, didn't want to do it. And three of them, it, they did, you know, and, and I think a lot of that was, was the nurture side of it. So so for me, I made that decision about 20, 27, 28 and, and made my peace with it. You know what, I'm going to go, I'm going to go home and, uh, and have yeah. a family. <laughs> yeah. I mean, from the outside looking in, I mean, it appears that like one of the factors that separates the top runners from the rest of us is that they can better determine the choices uh, to, you know, best suit what their their goal are, mm. the goals are. Mm. Um, I mean, this appears sort of straightforward, but like, how easy is it in reality to make those decisions? From I mean, your experience from when you were in Kenya. Um, that's ah, uh, it's a it's a difficult one. Uh, yeah, in Kenya. It's um it's very hard for the Kenyans because um well they've got so many problems going on right now um so it might not be a it might not be a great 
example. So if you're trying to say, if you're a better runner, you have the you have the advantage of making the right decisions early yep. on, and then that helps you become a better runner. So it's like a almost like a snowball effect. Is that right? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so definitely, you start winning races early on in Kenya, and you get put. Well, let's say in, in Brother Collins' camp or in Patrick Sands' camp, you know, alongside um, Elliot Kipchoge. And there are those elite camps in Kenya. And as soon as you're in there, um, there's massive advantages for you. Namely, um, you're away from your community and your village where there's a lot of people depending on you. And you're actually in, ensconced in that village. It's really difficult. And I've seen that firsthand where people are, you know, often in financial dire straits and they need food or they need help and, and they see you and you've got money and their tribal system is so close, well, they expect you just to, to provide. And so you might have people banging down your door every day, you know, saying, I need this or I need that. Uh, you get a few good results in a race, you get moved into a camp and you start doing, uh, you start doing really well immediately. I'd say Westerners, um, if you really want it, you know, we've got a lot of, um, a lot of somehow advantages where, you know, we can, um, we can have food and accommodation provided for us, you know, up till, um, you know, say early twenties, possibly, possibly. And then, um, if you've shown promise at that point, then, you know, you've got a lot of opportunities here. I don't yeah. know culturally if, if, um, if that's something that is happening that often here, I think running is taking a real nosedive in athletics in terms of popularity in this country, you know, in, as an elite sport, uh, I think football is definitely overtaken um, massively and, and other sports, other team sports are, are coming across as more glamorous. And I think the, the um, hard work that needs to be done in, with running um, and, the, you know, a lot of time away from, um, the media, a lot of hard miles and graph. I don't know if we've really got the appetite in, in this culture right now. Do you think it's more to do with um, only a few probably right at the top get paid like the salaries that you know can sustain that lifestyle? Because mm. like you say, it's hard work. But yeah, if you're not getting paid to do it, then it's hard to, to do. Yeah, it. yeah, it could it could be that, Marcus. I mean, obviously. Uh, we love going back to the golden era, and I'm going to do it too. Um, they weren't getting paid anything, were they? You know, I know Sebco yeah. is basically full time. You know, it took him was it five years to do his degree in Africa, so he was just banging around really. You know, he wasn't doing a lot of studying. He was basically a full time athlete, and I know Steve Vet, his parents supported him um, for a long part, so he was um, he was a full time athlete really. Um, so. They were doing it without much money, you know. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if um, if it's the the lottery funding and it's the elitism and some people are on it and some people are off it. But if you really love what you do, you know, you shouldn't need to get paid. And especially in running, where some bits of it are still relatively simple, you know, the um, the equipment side and the facilities. It's not like swimming or rowing or cycling. You know, it's, it doesn't have that um, that financial barrier from the outset. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is a love for it, but then obviously love doesn't pay the bills, does it? No, so, uh... no. And I think, yeah, you've got to get to it. You've got to get to a certain level. Um, yeah. 
I'd say another thing now is actually, um, I, you know, I've started coaching a little bit and I've got um, some guys younger than me and I do encourage them to get a social media presence because I just think, A, that's the way the world's going anyway. So, you know, get used to it. Um, it's a great way for uh, the brands to, you know, use an athlete um, to represent uh, their products, you know, and, and it just yeah. wasn't around before. And so it can be really empowering for the athletes to share their story, put their spin on it, not just to be some kind of prepackaged uh, billboard or poster or, you know, magazine advert. Um, is yeah, kids to, to get involved with the social media presence and, and get started young. But also, yeah, if you, if you can, if you can do that and make yourself viable, make yourself, you know, obviously the real deal, good runner, getting good times, but also, you know, engaging um, with, with people on the social media, you, you become a, you become somebody who might get stuff thrown your way in and that might keep you in the game longer. And, um, yeah. and then, you know, things can come from there. So many factors involved, isn't it? Because, oh, so you know, many. like yeah. you said, but then on one hand, you want to be great at your job, but then obviously doing well on social and that sort of thing requires another type of skill and yeah. you kind of can take away from the core thing, like you say, the love of running. But well, I don't know. If you do it right, you know, there's a lot of runners that I've seen um, that really seem to manage to, to find a way. Um, Alicia McColgan, yeah. I, I really like yeah. her. I think that she makes it look really fun. Uh, what she's doing and she shares in a really positive way on social media and she gets she's quite funny as well yeah and you know I, kn I know a few blokes that are big fans of hers you know and you know yeah. they hang on her every tweet and instagram post <laughs> and why not you know like why not become yeah. a, a presence in that way you know and, and then back it up and do the running as well you know and then she gets loads of um sponsorships going her way you know she's an ambassador for loads of people and she's in arizona and all around the world and i think she's doing a lot better because of that social media presence and then that gives her the opportunity to fund you know the trips and, and um, go abroad and do the serious training that's required you know to do what she loves so they go hand in hand they rightly don't have so. to be detrimental to each other yeah rightly so um you spent a lot of time with elite runners and you don't have to name drop if you unless you want to. I love but name dropping. <laughs> name drop away. Uh, what lessons or insights have you picked up from your time spent together? That's a that's a really good question. Yeah, so I have spent um, some time with some some great runners uh, with Frank Caldwell, but also um, with brother Colin McConnell in, in Kenya. And um, uh, the, you know, I did know I did know Rudisha very well. I don't know David Rudisha anymore, so I can't say that to you. But I did know him very well, and we did share the same. Um, room sometimes we're in the same bunk bed and um he he was always uh, when i met him he, he'd run like a 149 800 so it was by no means um yeah. you know a written in the stars thing but he was always the first guy up he was always the first guy up. he was always dragging everyone else out of bed he did you know he did have that hunger instilled in him from an early age and i think a lot of that was to do with his dad and i don't even think his dad had a lot, um, you know, uh, consciously to do with it. It was just the pride that he felt. His dad had been an Olympic silver medalist in the 4 by 400 meter relay in the Olympics. And yeah. his son just wanted to emulate that. He really wanted it. And he had that burning desire 
from early on, you know, and, and David Udisha, people don't see so much. He had a lot of struggles, a lot of things weren't going great for him. You know, some years he was feeling pretty down about running, but he, he never stopped having that burning desire. His, and, you know, there's a great, uh, there's a great question about, um, you know, if you had to raise a million pounds in a year, um, how many of you could do it? And you ask how many people, and two would say, yes, I could do it. If you say, if you don't raise a million pounds in a year, all your family will die. And then you ask those hundred people how many could do it. Then a hundred people put their hands up and say they could do it. And David yeah. Medisha, he had to make it. Like, he, he had that from an early age. Like You could just see that in his eyes. Like Everything revolved around him making it. He was that hungry from that early age. Yeah. And I think, you know, I did learn that. And I was like, mm, well, to be really, really honest, I don't know if I do have that hunger. <laughs> yeah, so that was something that I learned. You know, I, I saw that um, that that really, really strong craving desire that I thought I had. And then when you see it in someone, you're like, oh, wow, okay, that's what it really looks like. Yeah. Mm. I mean, do you, do you know where that sort of came from in terms of that? So I would say with him, I would guess it was his dad. He had um he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder with Isha because he is um half Ko and half Maasai, so he yeah. didn't really fit in either. So Ko are the Kalen, one of the Kalenjin um, clans. Um, so he had that kind of outsider thing, you know, where the Maasai was very rare for the Maasai to have middle distance runners. It was predominantly yeah. in Kenya, the Kalenjin thing. Um, David Isha was. Uh, half Maasai, so the, the Kalenjin sometimes were like, oh, he's a Maasai, they, he couldn't speak, uh, he couldn't speak Kalenjin, um, you know, which is their part of the language, so he was like, you know, just a bit of an outsider, a bit of a chip on his shoulder, he didn't go to the St. Patrick's school, he went to one down the road, and, and just like I said, it's just really, really bad, he wanted to, to prove himself to his dad, you know, and, um, and I think that, had something to do with it as well so yeah i remember once he, he won the world juniors and um we watched it he made us watch it so many times that it actually scratched the dvd <laughs> he couldn't even he couldn't even see it anymore because he fast forwarded it and rewinded it so many times it was that important to him you know so that um you know that guy had to go and, and break the world record <laughs> it was like it was so important to him from such an early age amazing to sort of hear that because when i listen to what you're saying it kind of reminds me of watching the michael jordan series did you see the last dance oh my god i love that yes really? definitely it talks about his yeah. dad and sort of trying mm, to press his dad and yeah, yeah. be competitive with his brothers oh man yeah and i would say michael jordan yeah he had that same drive didn't he like he, he just had to be the best you know and he invented stories and stuff didn't he and got quite aggressive to make yeah. sure, yeah, that he um he had that fire in his belly every time he went out on court, and yeah, David Dubis should definitely have parallels with that. Yeah, I mean, where do you think that fear of not wanting to lose comes from? To be so strong mm. that you will just do it, yeah. go at any cost. Yeah, when most people, you think like if you race, you can think of how many times you probably gave your maximum effort and how many times you probably didn't. Yeah. But these guys can probably <laughs> give them more hands. Yeah. Oh, man. No. I think it builds over the years. I think they start to um, make bigger shoes for themselves and then they have to walk in them. And um, mm. and I think that is, you know, I saw David Ubisu improve over his career 
And um, yeah, you start to expect more from yourself and the country then starts to get behind you and then you, it just grows exponentially. So um, yeah. yeah, and definitely the same thing happened with Michael Jordan. You know, once he's MVP in the league, he, he needs that. And then, it, and then it's not good enough to be MVP. He has to win the title. And then the same thing with Alicia, you know, it wasn't even good enough to win the Olympics. He had to get the world record and then he had to, you know, come and defend his Olympics. He was just he was just building year on year, and that was what he did for a long period of time. Yeah, mm. I mean, what was your biggest takeaway from the last dance? So, it, you know what? I think the biggest takeaway, unfortunately, would be sometimes you know nice guys finish last. <laughs> you know, Michael Jordan. I wouldn't. You know, the the impression I was getting was that on the court. He wasn't a particularly nice guy, you know, and even in the training, he wasn't, you know, it wasn't about being a nice guy. It was just he was driven and he was going to take you with him or you could get the hell out of there. And I, and I think that came across quite strongly was that this yeah. guy was a real force of nature and it wasn't about, you know, the, uh, the Nike adverts and, and, the, and, the, the, uh, and the, you know, the American dream. It was about you know that final day when everybody was going to get in line or they were going to get their head out of the way. So yeah, I think that came across. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, especially that, that scene where he goes to uh, see Dennis Rodman in Las Vegas, yeah, drags him out of bed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, no, this is brilliant. a brilliant series. I know. And Dennis Rodman, like, was not a guy I'd want to mess with, but he was yeah. the alpha, alpha. I think they said that in the show. Michael Jordan was the alpha, alpha. The way they even got yeah. everyone to come and train with him while he was filming Space Jam, I just thought that was yeah. amazing. You know, I had to have a gym built and get all these NBA stars to come and practice with Michael. That was the power that he that he wielded. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I just thought as well, like it was almost like he was the Hulk. It was like, don't make him angry because <laughs> then he's going to switch. You yeah, think, yeah, yeah. Don't get, don't piss him off. I know. <laughs> the people kept doing it. Yeah, I know. Oh man, there was just nothing they could do because there were other guys that had, was it the Knicks or that oh, someone had the Jordan rules, you know? So they were yeah. like, just don't let him take off. <laughs> don't let him jump, you know, just needle him and, and whack him, you know, but nothing worked, you know, in the end, the uh, cream rises to the top. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, great watching, and uh, yeah, if anyone gets a chance to watch it, mm. definitely go back and watch it. Mm. I think there's a, quite a few takeaways from it. We spoke about athletics, and you spoke about the um, state in the UK in terms of just uh, people coming through. Um, I just want to go back to uh, Night of the Ten Thousands, which you took part in oh, yeah. last year. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you sort of talk about that and sort of the benefit that's having for oh, bringing athletics? Yeah, it's an amazing event. It's you know, it's got to be now one of the best track events in the world, and so great um, for a runner like me um, to be able to in, um, engage friends who have nothing to do with running in. So I've got a lot of friends who have nothing to do with running and I've tried to take them to races before on the track and it's just, you know, that standard like two spectators and a dog, you know, the, the, yeah. the atmosphere is just dead and they're like, what are we doing here? And, it, and it's embarrassing. And um, Ben Pochi in Highgate Harriers, he just took that event by the scuff of the neck. I was I was at the first one, and it was um, you know it was a it was a great endeavor, but it was a shadow of what it is now. Um, yeah. I I didn't run. I wasn't particularly pleased with my run um, last year, but I had was it? I had about six friends come, and there were thousands of spectators, and the atmosphere was absolutely pumping. 
and there was drink and there was music and you know my friends had a really great time and I stayed after my race and watched all the other races and stayed late in the night and that is just something completely unheard of um, for, for athletics so it's just a, a brilliant thing and I just can't say enough about how well um, Ben Potu has done. I'm sure there's other people involved now but I know he was the mastermind behind it. Yeah, it's a great event, and uh, watching it from the side was just incredible. Yeah. So, and yeah. yeah, I think you know everybody who gets a chance should go, and I don't think anybody's come away without a good experience. You know, a lot of my friends are like surfers, you know, skater dudes, yeah. or like into hip hop and stuff. You know, like completely different um, circle, and so sure, and not what they would be ex- expecting to do on a, on a Saturday, you know, and they, and they loved yeah. it. You know, they had a great time you know, because racing it, it is like everybody's been in a race before, either it was on a track or it was in school cross country or if it was um, to the wall and back in the playground, you know, and, and everybody can, can relate to it. And I think that's why when the Olympics rolls around, everybody wants to watch the athletics. It's the, it's the marquee event. And, um, you know, to, to make, 25 lap race so exciting it's just you know it's just been brilliant and i think uh, i think it's going to grow from strength to strength and hopefully there'll be loads and loads of copycat events that pop up and and, and capitalize on it yeah it's just a shame obviously what's happened this year yeah uh, that obviously it's bigger than running but you know look, when it comes back it'll be great because i was there last year to watch it and mm. uh, it was just incredible yeah yeah we've just got to hope that the men- momentum hasn't been stalled and that, you know we'll keep going absolutely yeah. and from the outside looking in we I mean, look at the athletes or when i even do like a 10k or a 5k you know it's it's a tough run to an honest because mm. it, it does re- require you know a level of discomfort that you've got to stay in mm. uh, and i think it does take a special skill to it, sort of endure that discomfort i mean yeah. when you're running like a 10k or a 5k whatever i mean what are you thinking from like start to finish God, yeah i've done it you know i've done it a million different ways, Marcus, and I don't know if I've found the, the, the perfect way, but um, I, I would say there's, there's two types of um, running. There's, there's a type A and type B, where type A is you are enjoying it at the time and you're getting a thrill out of it and you're really in the moment, and type B is when it's like just pain and suffering and you hate it, but when you finish, then you, you get to enjoy it, you know, you finish, <laughs> you've been through that. Um, and, and I, um, I ran a, a, a quite a good time in a Ladywell, uh, 10k, um, which they tried to do a kind of a spin-off anyway, Kent AC is a club that I run with, and that was Taipei for me, I really, I just, um, focused on feeling good and relaxing and, and running a good time and, uh, just kind of, the good time came as a byproduct. Having said yeah. that, I had done, you know, like 10 weeks of good training beforehand. And I was I was hoping to emulate that in the Highgate Harriers, um, you know, just to not freak out so much. We always have the lap splits, but relax. And, you know, tension is a real speed killer, you know. So as soon as you start to force it, you often slow down. You feel like you're working harder, but you're actually running slower. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it just doesn't work <laughs> you know you can say relax and enjoy it as much as you want and you're just in a world of pain and you know so the highway areas personally didn't go so great for me i think i ran 30 seconds slower than i had run in the lady world one the year before um so i'm still working it out is the answer i'm 39 
and I don't know the answer. I don't know. You can split it into miles. Um, my coach Ken Pikes has split it into miles. We're splitting it into k's. It's too too many. <laughs> it takes too long to count. Yeah. I mean, do you find it harder to run it on the track or then yeah. say you run it on the road? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely harder. You just can't. You can't escape. You know, especially at Highgate Harriers. Yeah. Oh my God! And there were a lot of dropouts in, in the whole yeah. event. Because it was just a cauldron in there, you know. You can't, you can't get away from prying eyes. You can't run up a hill and then run down a hill. It's just the same on you the whole time, yeah. But in a way, that's brilliant, you know. It's a brilliant test of mental fortitude, and then you get to a road race, and it feels like a day off. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so you also run uh, the marathon as well. Um, yeah. I mean, what's your sort of targets? post uh, covid and how has it sort of changed oh man so the marathon was going like a dream for me you know i was like my goals after um kids was to move up to the marathon and i was running faster every marathon and i ran a, a 220 in berlin and i was only 20 seconds off breaking the 220 and i was like all this is just gonna go from strength to strength and i fell in a mountain race in italy and i cut my knee up and it held me back you know for for a while and then um i've had just a string of um of not very good performances since since then some have gone well excuse me <laughs> sorry um but some have um basically i haven't run the time again and so that's really got to be the goal for me you know i'm 39 now i'm not expecting um to be in in, um, in top shape for much longer and and also you know i want to start devoting more energy to my, to my kids and you know, I know Nina definitely wants me to do that too so I'm on a bit of um, a time frame here so I would say you know the goal for me is really honestly is to get to get myself under 220 because I know I can and then um, then from there it might, I might retire from the road scene completely and just you know everywhere around here is mountains anyway so to get to road yeah. races when you've got family, it can be problematic. I often have to take a weekend rather than, you know, just drive a few hours. Um, there's yeah. normally long drives involved. And um, I actually have pretty much nowhere flat to run on the roads around here. So uh, I know you're an ambassador for Mobile Pro, so the treadmill I've got from Mobile Pro it really helps with that as well. But, yeah. you know, it's not it's not something that I envisage doing Um in the next five years, I, I don't think I'll still be on the roads. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So mm. it's, I think it's a challenging one, isn't it? Because like we've got goals, but it's just waiting to see what happens with the races as well. But it seems like you still enjoy it though. You still yeah, have that balance between. I, I had some struggles, struggles, you know. I was I was really finding it hard through um, the lockdown. Um, I'm, I'm just figuring out now that actually all those benefits that I got from running, I only went out the door because I was scared of failing in races, you know, and so take the races away and I wasn't bothering to get out the door anymore. And then mm. I was putting on weight, I was looking in the mirror, feeling a bit crappy about myself and I was I wasn't getting those endorphins and that feel good factor and you know that nice feeling of just having invested yeah. something in the day after a run. You're like, you know, whatever after uh, whatever happens, you, you kind of feel like you've got this invincibility you know, like you just you can't touch me. I did my run, and and I'm not, everything's in its right place, and I've got peace with the world now. 
And I was like not bothering to run and then hearing about other people yeah. doing these great sessions on social media and then these virtual races are going on and people were running insanely fast times. And it was all really getting me down. So I really had a bit of a crisis with that. But I have found a way now, you know, just to, to just not worry about what everyone else is doing and just go out and enjoy my run. And um, yeah, and then make sure I'm, I'm running quite a bit now. Um, yeah. You know, I'm actually over 100 miles a week now, but I just get it done really early, get up at five, get my run done. And then I find that for me, I can eat the same amount that I normally eat um, yeah. and I can see what everyone else is doing on social media and I can be like, yeah, good for them. You know, which is the way it should be rather than, oh my God, I should be doing more and I should be more like them and, and all that horrible stuff, you know, which can drag you down. It's hard though, because we've got that, that sort of break where, you know, there's no races to go for. Yeah. So you kind of lose that focus with goals. Or like, yeah. I'm not in the same situation, but I had mm. a training session before London. Yeah. Um, obviously London has been postponed, but, We'll see what happens with that. Yeah. And original date in April, and I was just like, I was supposed to do this, this interval session. And I started it, and I was just like, I really can't be. I was just not, yeah. I was not motivated to yeah. do it. And I, was tr- and I yeah. tried, and I just, I just oh, couldn't get man. it done. So I said to my coach, I was like, look, I need to stop. But actually, in a weird way, it's been good because it seems, it seems like you've gone through a similar experience. Like you actually have to come back and be like, why am I running? Mm-hmm. Do you know, is it yeah. about medals, about times? Yeah. That's important, but I can't do it now. Yeah. So why am I running now? Yeah, yeah. and um, um, I remember. Um, Steve Ovet said, you know, I would run if I was on a desert island and there were no races and there were no Olympics. And he yeah. would, but he wouldn't be doing, you know, the 200 meter <laughs> intervals, you know, and throwing up on the side of the track. So you've got to find that running again. You know? And that's what we've all been going through, I think. And, um, and that's been great. So, yeah, for me, I've, I've knocked the sessions on my head now. They hurt yeah. and I wasn't enjoying them. And, you know, they were, they were things that I had to do so that I could run well in races, you know, to be honest. Yeah. Marathon training it is not all fun and games. A lot of it is, is suffering. You're feeling and suffering. And if you There's any fun it, in it? No, I don't know. Yeah. It's like very small F for the fun, yeah. I'd say. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's a small F. Yeah. So so I I've just I've just I've just swapped it all out for just I just go on these beautiful runs with all these birds and trees and um and that's what I'm doing now, and that's keeping me happy, and it's it's, it's making me a, a better dad, you know. And so I found a way uh, that's working for right now, you know. If we're still in lockdown yeah. in in two months, or we, there's no races in three months, I don't know. But I think that's the best any of us can do, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And um, next thing, I want I just want to shout you out for a tweet that you put out recently. Oh yeah. Um, the current situation with. Uh, in terms, terms, terms of uh, race and diversity, mm. and uh, there's been a lot of things coming up out in the states with you know George Floyd, yeah. Maud Aubrey, oh, yeah. um, and you put out a tweet about that, and I thought it was mm. pretty cool because obviously it sometimes could be easy to say nothing, stay silent, yeah. and things like that. So, yeah. um, I mean, what do you? I mean, it's an uncomfortable subject for sure, but I think the conversations need to happen. Um, I mean, what sort of steps do you think the running community can take to kind of? move beyond those sort of feelings of discomfort to have a no, just inclusive conversation. Yeah, so the tweet um, was, I think the tweet you're referring to is, is anyone, any, any other straight white males feeling yeah. really um, ashamed of being straight white male right now? And um, yeah, yeah, and I got a lot of negative comments back from that, you know, and, and I said to Nina, oh, you know, some people are saying that, you know, they appreciate that because I said, I'm sorry. For whatever it's worth, and um, 
and a lot of people were like, get a hold of yourself. I had to block a few people. Some of the things they said were, you know, so nasty. Um, and I was thinking about taking it down. And then Nina was like, no, keep it up. If that's the way you feel, that's genuinely how you feel, then it doesn't matter if you lose a few hundred followers. <laughs> you can't be yeah. afraid of that. Um, because that's exactly the problem. Yeah, so uh, I do feel, I, I feel, I feel ashamed and I've been trying to deal with why I feel so ashamed and, and it's, you know, it's, it's a complicated emotion, but it's, um, it's basically that somebody had to die in such a horrific way for me to be prepared to, to look at myself and to hear, you know, um, um, what racism is and that it is not what I thought it was. Um, and and I've just realized like a, a veil has been lifted and I know that it doesn't mean that I'm woke and that I'm not there and it's not like oh now I realize um, it's, a, it's something that I'm gonna have to struggle with and learn from for the rest of my life but um, I was definitely the problem you know and so I did feel ashamed in that it took me to so long and for such a horrible thing to have to happen for me to realize and that was the reason you know I've had every privilege um, every demographic, I'm a straight white male, you know, you cannot get a more privileged position in, in this world right now, and yet I was um, I was doing nothing to help uh, the, the people of colour and, and um, uh, ethnic minority communities, um, because I, it suited me, you know, and that's really hard to admit, but that is what was happening, you know, um, I, I've, I've I've been reading like crazy since, you know, just trying to understand and a term that comes up is, is white fragility and how hard it is for white people to hear that they might be racist because, you know, that sounds like an offensive, horrible thing. But when you say that you're not racist and I don't even see colour, then all you're saying is I refuse to see a problem and I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> so yeah. let's just keep everything as it is, you know, and everything as it is means no black people on boards, no Asian people in FTSE 100, you know, top company, no um, terrible immigration laws that our government are trying to pass and, and, and we're just turning a blind eye to it and we're the majority that actually have all the power and all the, um, all the tools at disposal to, to change this. So, um, yeah, I would say in, and in terms of the running community, it's, um, it is also something that we struggle with. You know, it seems to be, at the moment, it's quite a white middle-class uh, pursuit. You know, and certainly in terms of the club running scene, Parkrun has done loads of great stuff. And I know um, yep. Run Dem Crew and Charlie Dark doing amazing things. And um, they're based in Brixton. And I, I used to live uh, very near Brixton and Hand Hill. And um, I thought that I was... Um, I was woke I thought that I, I knew a thing or two because I had lots of black friends and you know people in my family were people of color and, and that's just <laughs> I realized that's all just part of the problem because every white person's got a story like that you know so they think they're exempted from from actually having to listen and um, and I think our whole our whole running culture um, could can do so much good um, but I think we all need to yeah I think we all need to li to listen right now. To, um, to what people of colour are saying and the, and the minorities that are so oppressed. 
Yeah, I think the book he's mentioned, White Fragility, is a good book to read. Yeah. And it really gets into some good concepts because I think that the point you touch upon is that a lot of white people probably feel the same. They're like, I'm not a racist person, mm. but that doesn't mean that you stand by anti-racism and there's a difference and it, yeah. i think the more insidious parts of it is not just the direct things that we see it's more the indirect things that but then the thing is like if you've been brought up in a way that like, you wouldn't even know it so for example yeah. i could give you an example like me growing up as a black kid i was told that you're always at a disadvantage mm-hmm. from being at home so you really grew up with a chip on your shoulder yeah. like, you always got to be yeah. better than your white counterpart yeah. whereas i'd say for you it'd be different even if you say you're i'm privileged financially or not I, I assume it probably wouldn't be the same sort of thing. So mm, that's something that the white uh, privilege wouldn't necessarily understand. And no. it's not necessarily your fault. It's just because that's just the way you brought up. So you wouldn't notice it. It's like yeah. you could be outside and it's raining and you think you're dry. <laughs> yeah. But it's really raining. Yeah. And, um, and I think you put in a post that um, white people, they, they don't need to understand. It's not important right now that a white yeah. person understands what it's like to be a, a black person that is not the issue here the issue is just accepting this is not working and and we need to change things and and it needs to come from the powers that be you know it needs to come from the majority uh, it can't just be um the, the black people who are who are not in the in the position right now you know they're not the the people that um that wield the power but you know, if you don't mind, I'd love to ask you about about that and, and how you feel. As, yeah, go for as it. A, yeah, well, just a person of color who has a you know quite a, a popular successful uh, social media um, presence in a um, a community, the running community, which is predominantly um, white, and and how that does that come across often? Do you feel that? You are um, an unusual case, or quite unique in that, or or how do you feel? Does it affect you? I think it's a good question. I think it probably has more so uh, because I tend to run solo. I tend to mm. not to run in groups. Mm. Um, I try to run in a running club. I won't mention the names, and they did make me feel welcome. But there were some subconscious things that happened, mm. or do you know what I mean, mm. micro things that happened that made me feel like, oh, okay, that's not. Quite right yeah. and i remember looking around and being like i'm the only black dude here mm, yeah, yeah and then like it's so like for example then i'd done the six stars and that kind of really puts you out and above yeah, and it's just like that was oh. amazing yeah. yeah it's amazing but it gave me the attention that I didn't need especially in a competitive running club it's like oh all oh, right so well, you didn't want that attention not i mean not in the way i think not not in the well done way some of it was kind of quite negative. Some of it was really? positive. What do you mean negative? Uh, you can kind of feel it. Do you know when someone's happy for you and, the, yeah. and but they're not happy for you? Right. <laughs> you know that feeling. Right. If, 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 you, if you came to me and oh, I ran 2.20 in Berlin, I went, oh, well done, Russell. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I don't mean that. Right, right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Okay, so, so it's, wow. The thing is that it's very subtle, though. Mm. It's not like something direct like, yeah. oh, you black, blah, blah, blah. It's yeah, like very subtle feelings you yeah. feel. So you always feel like you're on the back foot. So right. that's probably one of the reasons why that I run solo. It's something yeah. I need to work on. In terms see, of... but that is so sad, isn't it? You know, because yeah. we're in the 21st century, um, 2020, and, and, that, and that's the situation, yeah. So, I mean, do you think that your Instagram profile is helping other ethnic minorities see that, okay, he's a runner, I can be a runner? I can go to do these marathon races the same as you. Do you think it's having that effect? Uh, 
to be honest, I don't know. I mean, I started my profile because I love running mm. and that's how it continues. And that's what I mm. hope is the, the main message. Yeah. Um, everything is, this thing is kind of prog- progressed, not through my own choice. It's like, I don't really want to speak about race, yeah. but you're kind of in that position that you're asked about and you speak mm. about it. Yeah. It's like, right, when I yeah. think about, um, like for example, I could give you an example, like the people doing the Blackout Tuesday yeah. uh thing yeah. and i know some people got criticized for certain things and then mm. some people like oh you know i th- thought it was really unfair the way i've spoken to about x y and z but i was like yeah but you have a choice to be offended mm. when i was a, a kid at primary school mm. and i got you know racially abused and nothing happened yeah. i didn't have a choice yeah. Yeah. i didn't have a choice to be able to deal with it yeah. and process yeah. it wow. so wow. it's uh wow. you know it's these things for your life yeah. and so when you sort of see stuff like happening with like george floyd and those mm. sort of things it kind of reminds you of of taking you back to your own experience mm. and ideally mm. actually it's not something i'd love to talk about or really want to be a spokesman mm. for but you end up thinking well you know i'm here now i want yeah. I've got kids i want to yeah. want them to be in a better world yeah. so i'm probably braver for them but it doesn't necessarily mean i'm brave i w- want to right. be like yeah, yeah do this we should all do that yeah. i'm like just let me run yeah. <laughs> do you know what i mean right. so yeah. okay yeah and that's and I, I, well i can't imagine how difficult that must be yeah you're straight away having to be this activist and all you want to do is is run and i saw you got a lot of attention um when you did the um i run with more post was that on cnn wasn't it yeah that's crazy yeah Yeah, that picture got picked up by cnn and then it got more attention i mean that blew up and then you get some rock right wing like comments on it it's like oh my gosh it's kind of crazy so uh want to go do a run and show yeah. your support um, the way that other other white people are. But yeah. But the thing is, I don't mind the, the, the comments, but like the comments are from like hidden accounts. Yeah. <laughs> it's like if you're going to be racist, yeah. just be open with it. Oh, no, Do you know what I mean? No, but no. that's the thing that people want to hide it, and that's yeah. just the way it is, yeah. unfortunately, in this world. No, and you notice how um, you don't focus on the hundred positive comments, you focus on the one negative that you get you know it seems to be a kind of a, an inverse ratio where i could get 100 nice comments after a post and then i only think about the one horrible one that keeps me up at night do you get that but that's what i'd say as well mate is it's just a double-edged sword because although you say about not focusing on that but it's even though i got lots of attention for that it wasn't for something i did that i was like proud of it wasn't like i did a race and i was just like yeah mm. so it was like a really mm. Yeah. unsatisfying yeah. like right. Right. Not, yeah. not not even a win do you know what I mean off the back yeah. of someone dying mm. do you know what I mean yeah. the photo yeah fair enough but it's it's a weird one okay. it's like you, yeah. you you also you would like to you know be influenced but it's not it wasn't like from any sort of satisfaction even if I didn't get those negative comments it still wasn't as satisfying because it's still off the back of what happened which was so tragic when you actually watch the footage yeah. back oh, it's yeah. so emotive right. and it makes you think back to your own experiences yeah, right, so right yeah we'll see it. if anything i'm glad that it could carry on the conversation but mm. it still doesn't mean like i'm happy or comfortable being in the conversation okay i got i got you but i'm gonna ask you another question anyway <laughs> um yeah. if okay so i'm really conscious of this all fading away in in a month a, a year and then nothing yep. having changed, and and so while this is uh, on under the spotlight, and and people are listening, um, I'd love to know from you, you know, from somebody who has had you know, what it sounds like a really sad experience at running club, and yep. it doesn't have to be 
like you say, someone saying, oh, you know, um, get out of here, black man. It's the subtle, yeah. insidious, like you say, nature of it. What, uh, what would you say could could possibly be done long term? Like, what what could we? What could I think about? You know, I have got a little running squad. Um, I think you've got guys come on a Tuesday, and um, you know, what what could I be doing as a coach in that situation? If anything, you know, have you got any ideas on that? You know, just to... I think it's wider than. Running, mate. Um, yeah, I would. I know it is. I, know it I, I would. Yeah, I would say that. Um, look, I don't have all the answers, and also I've got to be mindful of that because I'm close to it. Then it's quite an emotive subject, so okay. I'm also conscious of that. But okay. what I would say is that what we've what we've learned from running is that doing difficult things produces great results. Mm-hmm. You know, through those hard workouts, yeah. we get you know right. great yeah. time. So, in the same way, in our real life like in running communities or just in general communities we firstly we need to do the work mm-hmm. i mean i read the books like white fragility we've, mm-hmm. we've mentioned before and we just need to have the conversations like yeah. you and i have this conversation a white guy and a black guy talking about race mm-hmm. like it's perfect because people might be thinking oh i don't want to say the wrong thing because i don't want to be perceived as being racist mm-hmm. but like we can't reach any sort of level of understanding unless we have these conversations. Yeah. And then you can see where I'm coming from. I can see where you're coming from. Mm. And then we build, mm. look, there's no sort of like, this is the solution, but it starts with, yeah. you know, doing the education, doing the work yeah. and then us talking about it yeah. and just being mindful of that way. I'm not looking for like any grand gestures. Like I need to have like a magazine cover of me or a black person every <laughs> month. Nice is this like, <laughs> It would be, but is it? It's not really necessary. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I don't need a token gesture. I just mm, need mm. genuine work and uh, commitment to do that. But mm, okay. that starts with people and having the conversations, the uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And doing the work first. Yeah. And not coming to me as like a black person going, yeah. "Oh, what's it like to be black?" Yes. Well, yes. What do you want me to say? I've been yeah. black my whole life. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I can't tell any different. Yeah. Okay. But hey, listen. There's some takeaways that you know I've got from that, so that has helped me a lot. I mean, I think um, it's worth worth you knowing that I've got two um, god kids, and they're, and they're um, people of um, people of color, and um, and so I've got skin in the game in a way. You know, I I, I worry about they're both from southeast London, okay, and there's a lot of there's a lot of problems with gangs there at the moment, and there's a lot of um, you know black kids killing black kids and some horrible yeah. stuff going on there. So I worry every day about those guys. And um, and I haven't I haven't even talked to those two about it, you know, about their race. I've just tried to, you know, to, uh, I don't know, almost shield them, you know. It's just now, it just sounds so stupid, you know. I should be not afraid. You've got to talk to them. Have the conversation. You've got to talk to them. And even if I, if I mess up, then, you know, and if I say something then I can learn from that and make the mistake, you know, move on rather than just pretend it's not happening, you know, and, and, and then just stay ignorant, which is, um, this is what I've been doing, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, you've got to have the conversations. I mean, like, uh, I was speaking to Alison Desir in uh, episode 16 and I asked this question, mm. like, what should we be saying to our kids? Mm. And she was saying, like, as a white parent, you talk to your kids, go, look, you're amazing, you're beautiful, mm. but you do realise that your skin colour gives you a certain privilege mm. and you may all see things in different ways. So yeah. you need to do some work to work on those yeah. kind of biases yeah. that you may yeah. doesn't mean you're a racist, it just means you're just you know I mean just not aware. Yeah, and the same as like society, yeah, which we've yeah. built very carefully. <laughs> and and the same as a black kid as well, like you have this different conversation and go, look, like for me, like you you talk, you talk to your kids and go, look, you're black, but it might mean that you might have to shrink within yourself not to appear mm. a certain stereotype, not to be loud or 
be seen as loud yeah. or aggressive or whatnot. Yeah. You know, yeah. To, to, to fit in. It's almost like you've got to show your, your humanity yeah. to the white community, but then yeah. are you being black enough for the black community? Right. So you've got to yeah. sort of... Yeah. yeah. Have, you read, um, there. have you read Chris Lambert's um, blog? Have you heard of him? No. So I'll, I'll send you the link. That's, it's really good. Um, I think I can just find the link for you here because it's excellent. We went to school uh, together and he... He went on to be um, an Olympian and um, went to Harvard. So, you know, really, really high achiever. It's at Lamb's English. And okay. um, he, he just explains um, kind of what, what you're saying, you know, about that struggle of um, do, you, do you black up with black friends or you, do you white up with white friends, you know, and, and how... Yeah. He says in certain expletives how tired he is of that, you know, and how he's just had enough of that his whole life, you know, and, and it's gone viral and it's done really well. I mean, he's actually written it to, he's addressed it to his, to his white friends there. So uh, I would just encourage anybody who's, who's um, listening and is interested to check that out. Absolutely. And I would like to say one thing before we wrap this bit up as yeah. well, is that like all sides have biases, you know, yeah, black people are racist against black people. Um, for example, like you could talk about men and, and women, like yeah. just because my mum's a woman, my mm-hmm. sister's a woman, doesn't yeah. mean I, I understand what it's like to be a woman. So we, we've all got our work to do. No one's perfect in yeah. this and no one should be sitting there mudslinging and being like, you got nothing on me because we've all, <laughs> yeah. we've all said something. We've all thought something oh, that's been like, if we put on, on, on social, like, mm, mm-hmm. that's quite questionable. Yeah. So, um, no one's perfect we've all got to do our work so um yeah. i just want to put that out there it's mm. not just black and white and white and black it's yeah, everyone yeah yeah for sure but it's been great talking to you about the race and uh yeah it's been great with that sort of stuff so um thanks yeah. so much for for letting me ask you a few questions as well marcus that's all right <laughs> um so moving on to the final questions um what is one non-negotiable behavior that you do daily sleep <laughs> with um, kids uh, how's that possible <laughs> i know i have to get eight hours sleep and i mean really yeah. know i'd like more but if i don't yeah. get eight then the next day is a write-off and, and my family do understand that now it's more important than anything i do during the day and you know there's a lot of science behind sleep and how important it is and there's all mm-hmm. these hacks and quick fixes and people wanting to use tools to recover and they're not putting the eight hours, nine hours of sleep in, you know, and, and I think as a runner, it's a massive oversight. You, know, you can't, you can't buy that. And um, if you listen to um, this LeBron James podcast on um, Tim yeah. Ferriss, um, or there's lots of really, really knowledgeable um, sports scientists out there who just advocate for sleep, do that first. <laughs> and that's, a, that's something that I get my athletes to really focus on. And it means, you know, it means screens off. It means no beers too late. It means no yeah. coffees. And it means you're taking your sleep serious. If you want to be a good runner, um, that's where you recover. That's where you grow. And that's where, you know, that's where you improve, really. Yeah, you've got to commit. You've got to do the right things, yeah, haven't you? So, uh... yeah, and you don't skimp on, on sleep. So more important than any habit during the day is, is my sleep has to get done. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And what is the biggest lesson that running has taught you? failing definitely failing you know i failed at so many levels on so many occasions in front of so many people who i love and and you think it's the end of the world some of the, the failures that i've had and then 
the sunrise was another day you grow from that experience it it might be a month later it might be a year later where you realize what was so good about that experience and uh, everybody who still counts still cares for you just the same and and, and you grow you know and you, and you learn stuff so i've definitely learned how to fail i don't like it but i've learned you know to accept that it's a part of growth and you know and i've had a few successes i've won a few big races and i've, I've done pretty well in lots of people's eyes but for me i understand how many failures it takes along the way to, to get there i don't i don't understand but i am in the process of understanding that failure is a big part of success yeah, even the most successful people and whatever, however you view success, have failed at something. I yeah. mean, no one gets through life scot-free without mm-hmm. some sort of failure yeah. or heartache yeah. or something like that. So that's a great piece of advice. Yeah, and you know, and the, and the bigger you get, the, the bigger the risk of, of bigger failures, you know, so that only grows. And you know, so it's like failing at a park run or failing at the Olympics, you know. And um, Michael Johnson's book, Slaying the Dragon, that's one I definitely, I learned a lot from that one and would definitely recommend that one. He talks a lot okay. about about failure and dealing with it, you know. And, and he's uh, he was an Olympic and um, world champion and two hundred meter, four hundred meter world record holder, you know, and he had to deal with, with some big failures. Yeah, but people just don't see. They just no. focus on yeah the wins and the yeah, gold shoes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. exactly. Imagine if he had a not one in those gold shoes. Yeah. Um... That's like being a kid. Do you remember when you had your football boots and you had like mm-hmm. uh, the white and gold uh, boots? You're like, oh, you had to be good to wear those boots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, questions would be asked. I was never any good at football. I was always an American football fan. I was rubbish at soccer and football or whatever you call it. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, dude. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Last question. If you could give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, it'd be slow down. Uh, you know, the Frank Corwell thing it was either you rise to the top or you, you kind of crumble to the bottom and, and I'm not going to, you know, he had a lot of success and it worked really well. And, you know, a lot of his strategies are still implemented today and they work really well. But for me, I, I could have just slowed down, taken my time, realized I didn't need to achieve everything that year or that next race. Or, you know, and I really wish I could have gone back to 19, 20 year old self and just, just slow down. You know, just, Take your time. Every race, every run, every <laughs> every training session doesn't have to be eyeballs out and flat out. And I could have saved myself a lot of pain. So it's definitely something that I try and instill in, in my training squad. Is like eighty percent today is yeah. fine and staying in the game. You know. Great lessons there. And uh, lastly, where can people follow your journey online? Yeah, so um, I've got a blog, russellrunner.com. I haven't been on it much um, during lockdown because I normally blog about races. <laughs> so that's been difficult. Um, but yeah, russellrunner.com and then um, at russell underscore runner. That's on Twitter and Instagram. Awesome. Russell's been great talking to you. I feel like I could talk to you for much longer. But, cool, uh... Marcus, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was, it was really good fun. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Runner's Life. If you found value in this episode and want to support the show, please share with your community, post on your social media channels and encourage them to listen and subscribe. If you want to support my work directly, you can become a member on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash a runner's life. If you want to get in touch with me or see what I'm up to, you can follow me on my Instagram page at the Marathon Marcus. Your time is valuable, so thank you for spending your time listening to this episode of a Runner's Life podcast.